Well, good morning, Storehouse family. I hope that your week has gone well. Uh, for those of you who are joining us uh, online this morning, it's an honor to have you. My name is Marco. Uh, I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse uh, McAllen. Uh, I want to invite you to join me in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Uh, we are closing out our time uh, in this series throughout 1 John that we have titled Walking in the Light. I hope that this series has been an encouragement to you. I hope that it has uh, been beneficial for you and certainly your family. So while you open or load your Bible, I just want to give you a couple of announcements. I'm really excited about each one of these, but I'll try my best to keep them nice and concise. Uh, the first announcement is our reopening. We are going to be resuming uh, Sunday morning services beginning on May 31st. We're going to be having a 9.30 a.m. service along with an 11.30 a.m. service. And so what I'd like you to do is either visit our website or our Facebook page so that you can watch, uh, I suppose, our reopening video to get more details on what to expect beginning May 31st. So again, May 31st, we are going to be resuming our Sunday morning worship gathering. So that's the first announcement. The second announcement I have for you is beginning June 7th, we are going to be starting a new sermon series titled Untangling the Heart. And it's a seven-week uh, series uh, throughout the Psalms. So I'm very excited about this series over the last eight to nine weeks through conversations and Zoom calls and meetings, uh, one of the things that has become very apparent to me is how we as Christians engage our emotions. How do we engage our emotions in a way that not only honors the Lord, uh, but how do we engage in them in a biblical way and certainly in a healthy way? And so I'm really excited for that. Again, that's June 7th. And the third announcement that I have for you uh, is our recovery groups. Recovery groups Groups begin Wednesday, June 10th. Recovery groups are small gatherings. Uh, they are seasonal gatherings uh, for us. That, that happens throughout the summer. Uh, and this is a time uh, where we provide an intensive season of discipleship for individuals who are battling habitual sin, where uh, there is just a sin that you are battling daily and find yourself losing regularly. And so we want to come alongside you to help you uh, as you continue to battle sin and ultimately point you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Visit our website, storehousemccallan.com slash recovery to learn more about recovery groups, to learn about our resources, and also to register for them. Uh, those are all the announcements I have for you this morning. If I went through them fairly quickly, everything for you is on our website. Um, again, if you are just joining us, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 5. We're looking at verses 14 through 21. So when I was in high school, uh, I had uh, a teacher named Mr. Trevino, and he was uh, one of the most influential teachers I ever had. Uh, he was my English teacher my junior year of high school. And when it came to writing our essays, uh, and specifically when it came to writing our conclusions, he would always tell us, 
when you write your conclusion, make sure you tell him what you told him. And he would press this onto us every single time. And that's exactly what the Apostle John does for us in this final passage. He's going to summarize the ground he's already covered, and he does so by returning us to the basics. He does so by returning to what he's already told us. In his closing statement, the Apostle John purposely draws us in by reminding us of one of the fundamentals for the Christian faith, and that is confidence before God. We could also say prayer. You see, it's the basics of the Christian faith uh, that we exercise in an effort to um, in an effort to exercise wisdom, in an effort to exercise discernment. And the truth is, is that if you and I neglect these basics, if we neglect our fundamentals, um, then we risk compromising our foundation. You can look throughout the pages of history to notable figures such as, um, oh, sports coaches who talk a great deal about mastering the fundamentals, mastering the basics, because it is the basics that are going to get you ahead. It is the basics that we are going to jump off from in an effort to learn more about technique and performance and ultimately success. And so this week, I just began to look at what coaches throughout history have said or have done concerning the basics. And so if you are a football, or excuse me, take that back. If you are a basketball fan, uh, maybe you have heard of John Wooden. He was known as the Wizard of Westwood. He was uh, the basketball coach or the head basketball coach for UCLA in the late 1940s throughout the 1970s. And one of the things he was most known for was his meticulous drive for the details that were found in the fundamentals, in the basics. Uh, One of the things that he would do, uh, I suppose at the beginning of the season, was before practicing uh, sprints or layups or all these different types of exercises, he would ask his basketball players to take off their shoes and to take off their socks. And what he would do is he would teach them how to properly roll their socks up onto their feet. And essentially, he began to teach them how to put their socks on and how to put their shoes on properly. And so when asked about Uh, why he would break everything down to the sock and the basketball shoe, he would say that uh, the reason he teaches his players how to properly roll their socks on is because if they don't roll their socks on, sometimes socks will wrinkle. And if they wrinkle during practice, they can cause blisters. And if blisters happen during practice, it's going to affect their performance, whether it's during the week at practice or during the game. And so the best way to address Uh, or to prevent blisters is by teaching them the basics of how to actually put their socks on properly. It sounds bizarre, but homeboy won all sorts of NCAA division championships, and I think that's important. Uh, One of the other coaches throughout history, particularly in the 1960s, uh, was Vince Lombardi. Many of you probably have heard of him or read about him or, or, or know him and his legacy. He was the coach for the Green Bay Packers. And one of his rituals at the beginning of every football camp was that he would strip everything down or everything away 
from what his players knew about the sport of football. Uh, he didn't care where they came from. He didn't care what they knew. He didn't care about their stats. Uh, so he would begin training camp, every training camp, by holding up a pigskin and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. And he began by teaching them the basics, the basic fundamentals of the sport of football. Uh, and now these are individuals who are playing at the professional, the, the elite level. And here we have a coach who is stripping them of all they think they know and teaching them about the basics. When we read through scripture, we see that the apostle Paul to Timothy addresses the basics of the Christian faith. In 1 Timothy 4 verses 7 through 8, Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What the Apostle Paul essentially is telling Timothy is all of these things are going to be happening around you. People are going to be talking where you need to ground yourself is in the word of God, is in prayer, and how those implications affect your daily life. Don't worry about what's going on to the right of you or to the left of you. Train yourself for godliness. And he does so by addressing the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I think it's safe to say that the fundamentals, or let me say it this way, that fundamentals are significant. I think that would be an understatement, but I think, again, we could agree that the basics, the basic fundamentals are significant. However, sometimes the fundamentals can become all too familiar. And because we become too familiar with them, they become boring to us. And because they become boring to us, you and I can often neglect them. Like if we uh, apply this to our walk with Jesus, there are things in our walk that simply become too familiar. And again, if we're honest, they become boring. That we have heard John 3.16 over and over and over again. That Galatians 2.20 is still taped to my mirror in my bathroom. That the gospel, yes, it's good news, but it's kind of boring and old news. How much do I have to listen to this? What the Apostle John wants you and I to know this morning is that the fundamentals, like confidence before God, like prayer, those fundamentals are formative for our walk with God. And so what I'd like to do is I want to look first at confidence before God, and then I want to look at how confidence is formative in our walk with God. So once again, if you're just joining us, we are in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. I'm going to read them. Actually, I'm only going to read the first two verses because I'm going to go through them as we walk throughout our time, and then I'll pray. Uh, beginning of verse 14, this is what the Apostle John says. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this morning because we get to uh, hear from you through your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work in us. We ask that you would reveal Jesus to us through your word so that we would worship him, so that we would be challenged and convicted by your word, but so that we would also be reminded of your grace and mercy toward us. God, as we close this series, my prayer is that we will come out on the other side more like Jesus, not simply more knowledgeable, but that we will be more like Jesus. God, we thank you for this morning and this time of worship. God, we look forward to the gathering next week where we get to come together again, uh, worship you and proclaim your name. God, may you be with us throughout that time, but may you, may you be with us throughout today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his opening verse, the Apostle John writes about confidence. I just read that at the beginning of verse 14. He writes, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is not the first time that John has addressed uh, confidence to his readers. Uh, And so what I want to do before we dive into, and I want to say really quickly, when we're talking about confidence before God in prayer, I might use those phrases and terms interchangeably. And so what I'd like you to do is I want you to listen to author Joe Carter uh, and what he says about prayer. He writes, prayer is an encounter with God that is initiated by him through his word and that changes our hearts as we humbly communicate and worship the Lord, confess our sins and transgressions, and ask him to fulfill both our needs and also the desires of our heart. Simply put, prayer is coming before the presence of God. You see, in prayer, we not only adopt a posture of humility, but vulnerability, because when it comes to prayer, we recognize that we are actually in the presence of God. And when we are there, nothing else matters. And because nothing else matters, you and I cannot uh, help but be humbled and be made vulnerable before God. You see, in prayer, we are simultaneously dependent and helpless. You see, we are dependent on God and his character and his work, and we are helpless because we recognize that grace and mercy are our only hope. And in the beauty of the presence of God, it's not that he leaves us helpless. It's that he meets us where we are in that time. And so I want to begin just by looking at that first half of verse 14. I want to begin by asking you, what is your posture like when it comes to prayer? What is your posture when it comes to confidence before God. 
You see, if we're honest, at least for me, many times I struggle in my prayer life because I actually don't want to be made vulnerable. Because when I'm made vulnerable, that means everything is laid out, particularly my sin and my heart are laid out on the table before God in his presence and there's nothing else I can do. But the beauty of prayer and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God's word is that he does not leave us where we are, but he meets us where we are to remind us of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness uh, of our sins. At the end of the day, our formation begins with our prayer life. It begins with our devotional life. Our formation begins with our confidence before God. And so as we begin to look more at how confidence is formative, what I'd like to do is walk through five ways in which, as I said, confidence is formative. These are five things that John lists for us. Uh, Each one of these are things that he's already mentioned throughout his letter. So essentially, he's just going to tell us what he's already told us, but we're going to focus in on a couple of things. So beginning with the first way in which confidence is formative, I want us to look at verses 14 or the second half of verse 14 through 15 and see that petition and our requests are a result of our confidence before God. Listen to what John says. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John wants to remind you and I of two things that are certain in prayer. Here they are, a promise and a qualification. That when it comes to prayer, you and I have a promise and a qualification. The promise is that God hears us. That's a beautiful promise. That's a beautiful promise because it tells us that because of what Jesus has done, we have access to the Father. And so like children who go to their Father, we can go to our Heavenly Father in confidence. We can go to Him and make our requests known. And He will hear us. That's the first thing John wants you to know. Hey, a promise here is that God will hear you. And there's a qualification. He says it here in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, John introduces this back in chapter three, when we look at verses 21 and 22. He says, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That is that God listens to us and he responds to us because first we are, not only do we belong to him, but because we belong to him, we are obedient to him. And not only are we obedient to him, it is because we actually want to do what pleases him because our hearts are aligned with his will. Therefore, his will becomes our will. And when we hear this about petition and requests, we love the promise part. We love that God hears us. 
we don't necessarily like the qualification part because in the qualification, you and I sometimes uh, will be convicted because uh, we're going to see that our will is in conflict with his. And so as a result, we're actually not coming before him in humility. We are not being made vulnerable. Instead, we're still arrogant. We're still uh, trying to have a, a, a transaction type of relationship that rather than going before God as our heavenly father, we are actually going before him like we do through the drive-in restaurant or the drive through restaurant. Here are my requests. Here's what's going on. Do something. John reminds us that there are two certainties in prayer. There is a promise and a qualification. The second thing uh, in light of uh, what happens in confidence or how confidence is formative is intercession. This is verses 16 to 17. I actually want to park here for a little bit. So let's read them. John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. Excuse me. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Clear as mud. I love it. So what we're going to do is break it down slowly, and then we're going to address a couple of things, right? But here's kind of the, the 20,000 foot view, and it is that John is reminding you and I that confidence before God leads us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and those who do not know Jesus. And so as a result, let's clear up a few things within these two verses. The first thing that I want to address is the word death. The word death in these two verses is not referring to a physical death, but a spiritual death. In addition to that, John talks about sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. And so we're going to clear it up this way. John is referring, when he says uh, sins that do not lead to death, he is referring to sins that have already been forgiven by the blood of Jesus for the one who belongs to him. And when it comes to sins that do lead to death, these are sins that have not been forgiven because that individual does not belong to Jesus yet. I want to address a couple of things. The first one, I got a lot of questions for you, but the first one is, do you pray for those who do not know Jesus? I know you know people who do not know Jesus. That includes your family. That includes your friends, your coworkers, Facebook friends. Everybody's online right now. I know you know people that do not know Jesus. Do you pray for them? I know for a fact that the Apostle Paul prayed for his friends. In Romans 9, he goes on to say that he could give up his salvation for the sake of his friends coming to know Jesus. He would do that. And you hear the anguish in Paul's heart. Do you share that same anguish for those who do not know Jesus? If you do, do you pray for them? 
Do you pray for them? Additionally, John talks about our brothers and sisters. So here's the next question. When it comes to a brother or a sister who is about to engage in sin or who has fallen into sin, do you pray for them? What is your heart or attitude toward your brother or sister who is in sin? Do you ignore them? Do you harm them? Or do you help them? You see, when it comes to our Christian brothers and sisters, this text is about restoration. And John is making the case that when we see a brother or a sister in sin, we have a responsibility. That's a key word right there. And I'll show you in a bit. We have a responsibility to help them. And he tells us how. We help them by first praying for them. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. First thing we do is that we pray for our brother and sister. We pray that they would be convicted of their sin. We pray, uh, man, that they would recognize that they belong to Jesus. And so therefore we want them to turn away from their sin and fix their eyes on Jesus. Additionally, John says, uh, he says, he shall ask and God will give him life. As we are praying, we are asking God to bring conviction. We are asking God to do a number of things, even things like bring them shame. The apostle Paul talks about shame in 1 Thessalonians, and he doesn't talk about shame just so that the individual would just feel all sorts of shame. It's that so that when they feel shame, their eyes would be pointed toward Jesus. The word ask in verse 16 uh, is translated actually into, we are begging God, we are imploring God to do something, to convict them of their sin, to bring them out from their sin. The third thing that we do as a way of helping them is restore them. That means you and I get our hands dirty. And you would say, well, John doesn't say that. John doesn't say that here. Well, we can look at scripture. We can look at the rest of scripture to affirm restoration. Paul in Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Moving on. Jude, verse 22 and 23, he writes, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. James chapter five, James goes on to say, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Each one of these verses, including John, is talking about restoration. And so how do we help our brother and sister who is in sin, who have fallen into sin? We pray for them. We ask, we implore, we beg God to intervene. And we get our hands dirty by restoring them. 
I know for many, the question might be why. Why do we do that? Is it just because we are Christian? In part, yes. It is because we are Christian, because when a brother or sister commits sin or they are living a a, a lifestyle of sin, it ought to bring concern to you and me. We ought to be devastated by what is actually happening. Because if we're not devastated, if we're not concerned for our brother or sister, we're actually just bringing reproach to the gospel. That the implications of the gospel don't mean anything for me that when it comes to me bearing my brother's and sister's sin. Elsewhere in Galatians 6, Paul goes on to say, bear one another's burdens. Part of the restoration process is that that brother or that sister's sins become mine. That is my responsibility. So I ask you the question, what kind of a posture do you take when a brother or sister is in sin? Do you ignore them? Do you ignore them in the sense that, man, they've made those decisions. They've done all those things. uh, They're going to have to figure it out. Do you harm them that when they have committed sin, that you bring shame upon them, that you belittle them? Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you just gossip about them. Maybe you just talk behind their back because of whatever it is that they have done. Or do you help them? Do you help them by praying for them? By asking God to intervene? And by getting your hands dirty when it comes to restoring them? Sometimes helping them means addressing their sin. In fact, that's part of it. I shouldn't say sometimes, it is. It is addressing their sin. Listen to verse 17. John says, all wrongdoing is sin. That part of the restoration process, part of the process for you and I in terms of getting our hands dirty is that we are going to address their sin. We are going to address sin. Not our preferences, not our opinions. We are going to address sin. Transgressions against a holy God. And our, part of our responsibility is to restore them in gentleness because we are concerned for them, because we love them, because we are devastated for what is happening. And so we're just begging God to do a work in one of his children. So what kind of a posture do you take when it comes to intercession, when it comes to those who don't know Jesus and those who do know Jesus but are just slipping and falling on their face? What kind of a posture do you take, church? Number three, security in Jesus. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I want you to underline that word touch. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you belong to Jesus, then John wants you to remember a couple of things in verses 18 and 19. The first thing that he wants you to remember is that you used to belong to the world. You used to belong to the father of the world, that is Satan. You used to belong to them, but Jesus has saved you, forgiven you, and sealed you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as a result, 
You and I have been redeemed. You and I are new. We're not perfect, but we are new. And so when John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, he is talking about a lifestyle, habitual sin. That when Jesus saved us and forgave us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, his work on the cross not only forgave us of our sin, but in addition to that, he has freed us from the bondage of sin. And because he has freed us from the bondage of sin, we now have the power to say no to sin. Yes, absolutely. The presence of sin still lingers. You and I will fail regularly. And there is grace for the Christian because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Because in this text, John goes on to say that those who are born of God, that is those who have been given a new heart, that yeah, you're going to fall on your face. You are. And those sins have been forgiven. So for the one who belongs to God, we don't actually make a lifestyle of sin. We don't actually live a habitual lifestyle. We are new, but we are not perfect. And so church, pay attention to the person who says that they know Jesus, that they love Jesus, but they live a lifestyle of sin. Not just make a bad choice here or there, but their lifestyle is not one that demonstrates that they belong to the Father, that is our Heavenly Father, but their lifestyle actually reflects that they still belong to the Father of this world, Satan. One of the last things in this text that that John reminds us in, in light of us having security in Jesus, and that is that Satan, listen to me, church, Satan cannot ever hold you again if you belong to Jesus. I want you to listen to uh, the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, because I think he says it better than, than I ever could. He says, or he writes, The wicked one does not get hold of those who are born of God. That evil one does not cling to them, does not get them into his embrace. He does not get them back into his clutches. Again, what a wondrous promise this is. If we just think of that word touch with its usual connotation, it would virtually be saying that a Christian cannot be tempted, but that would patently be wrong. John does not say that we know that because we are born again, we will never be touched in that sense. No, the devil will tempt us. That wicked one will try us. He may torment us. He may make us wretched and miserable. He will do his best to depress us and make us unhappy. Yes, but he will never get us back into his clutches. That is what John is saying. He can do many things to us, but he will never hold us again. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. It is a beautiful reminder of, of our security in Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the evil one cannot touch you. Number four, the assurance of our faith. Verse 20. John writes, 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John says that Jesus is true three times in this verse. And because Jesus has come and revealed Himself to you, church, and He has saved you from your sin, you have been given understanding and eternal life. Now, when you hear the word understanding, it doesn't sound too amazing. Great. I've been given understanding. What exactly does that mean? That means because of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in you, that is giving you a new heart, you have been given understanding of salvation. That salvation is only uh, able to occur through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That you have been given an understanding of the gift of faith. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your doing, it is the gift of God for you so that no one may boast. When he talks about that, so that we wouldn't boast in ourselves, but that we would boast in the person and work of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, you and I have been given an understanding that we have been reconciled to God the Father through the work of the Son. That is the fence of separation that was between us and the Father has now been removed through the work of the Son. And as a result, you have been given eternal life. You belong to Jesus and the evil one can't touch you. You are his because he is true. And finally, guard your hearts. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul Tripp, maybe you've read some of his books, Paul Tripp defines idols as, quote, something that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. Why would John conclude his letter this way? If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, he always has a great deal of, uh, of a conclusion. Uh, oftentimes in our Bibles, it says final greetings. And Paul says, I want to uh, say hi to this person, or I extend this, this, this holy kiss to these brothers and sisters. And he talks about who's with them, but not John. John closes it by saying, little children, which has been his term uh, of endearment to the church. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I think for starters, uh, John concludes his letter this or this epistle this way because he wants to remind the church that people from within the church have actually revealed themselves to not know Jesus and to not follow Jesus. And as a result, these individuals are going to be persuading the church to deny Jesus, to deny the incarnation. And they're going to persuade them with eloquence in their speech. They are going to persuade them by tickling their ears. They're going to try and persuade them by using cunning language. And what John is reminding the church is that you need to keep yourself from idols. Idols aren't just these gods with a little g of antiquity. Antiquity. Sometimes idols can be things like knowledge. Sometimes idols could be that they're going to stir up things from within you so that you would deny Jesus and his incarnation. Keep yourself 
from idols. I think he also concludes uh, his letter this way because he knows that our hearts are weak. Our hearts are fickle. Think about the past eight to nine weeks. What has this season revealed to you? What has this season revealed to you? You see, when it comes to idols, as I mentioned, it's not just something tangible. Idols don't just come in the forms of golden calves. They don't come in the form always of money. They don't come in the forms of even power all the time. Sometimes they are good things. Sometimes they even have gospel-centered language sprinkled all over them. Think about the last eight to nine weeks. What has been revealed to you, Christian? Our idols, I think, that have been revealed have been everything from how we view family, what kind of a place relationships hold for us, and the idol of information. If I have more information, therefore I am secure. Some of our idols have even been civil convictions, political convictions, social convictions. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that any of those convictions are bad. In fact, those convictions are good. However, sometimes good things turn into bad things when they have become the main thing. That is idolatry. That compromises our foundation. That is us ignoring our basics, our fundamentals. Our foundation is that Jesus is Lord. And that has implications for how we live and how we conduct ourselves. That has implications for how we examine our hearts. Convictions on, for instance, political or social or civil areas, that's a really, really good thing. The question is, have they become idols for us in this season? So little children, keep yourselves from idols. If we want to examine our spiritual formation, that's what we've been talking about, these, these five reasons. Let me, let me just walk through them very, very quickly in case you just joined us or you forgot, right? That confidence before God is formative for our walk with God. And so we looked at five ways in which that is true. That is through petition and requests, intercession, security in Jesus, uh, that is uh, our assurance of our faith or the spirit of truth, and then finally guarding our hearts. So as we conclude, if we want to examine our spiritual formation, then you and I must go back to the basics, starting with the word of God and prayer. It is there. It is in those fundamentals. It is there with the formation of our hearts and our walk with God are revealed. So Christian, as you look through these various ways of formation, where is your heart distant from the Lord or even hardened? Rather than walking in, in the light, are you walking in arrogance or darkness? Is there an idol that is competing 
for the reign of your heart this morning. Let me just encourage you. Repent of your sin. Lay it all on the table. Approach God in confidence. The author of Hebrews says that when we approach uh, the throne in confidence, we can be sure to receive mercy and grace. Repent of your sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on the foundation and the fundamentals that help build it. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know a couple of things. I am so thankful for you. I really hope I get to see you and meet you next week. But until then, if you don't know Jesus, you are still in bondage to your sin. And idols are all around you and you serve them. The good news is that Jesus invites you to come and know him. He asks that you would repent of your sin because he is ready and willing to pardon any sinner who turns away from their sin and believes in him. So church, as we conclude this series, remember, Confidence before God is formative to our walk with God. Storehouse family, I love you. I am looking forward to next week and hopefully seeing you on Sunday.